our journey so far has uh, has taken us through the uh, the early life of of Jesus, his birth, and the birth of John the Baptist is where we began. So we're going to come back to John the Baptist here this morning as as we look. Now, when we left chapter two, the last part of chapter two, verses fifty one and fifty two, there. We said last week, cover a, a period of about 20 years. So there's 20 years here of, of basically silence on the life and ministry of Jesus and of, of John the Baptist. We haven't heard really anything of him since, uh, since his birth. And uh, now we come back here to a portion of his life, the beginning of his, his ministry. Uh, let's, let's read through. We're going to read through the first 20 verses here and uh, this Ministry, the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. So Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone, or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Let's have a word of prayer before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, 
As we come to your word to see these great and important truths from this message of John, strengthen our faith this morning, encourage us in you, draw us more closely to the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, we begin the ministry of John the Baptist. The first couple of verses that we have here, verses 1 and 2, give us some general historical setting. Now this isn't a history class, so we're not going to go through all of those, but if you do enjoy history, in those first two verses there is a lot of really interesting information. The people that are listed, the things that are there, give a lot of great detail about what's happening at the times. There's some intriguing stories behind it. Essentially what he's telling us here, besides setting the date of when this occurred, is giving us an indication of what society was like at the time by telling us who was in control, both from Rome, over Judea, and in the people of of Israel. It tells us of a politically tumultuous time. Emperor Tiberius was a a wicked emperor uh, who at the time uh, the Sea of Galilee was uh, renamed for him, uh, and, but was a particularly wicked king. Pilate, who we know and we'll see more later, was uh, the Roman governor who was put in charge over Judah because the area had really lost control and were becoming unruly. And so Pilate was a brutal and, uh, and a tyrannical ruler over the, the Jewish people in many ways. And uh, so he was not a friend of the Jews. Uh, He would do the bidding of God, but history shows him to be a brutal governor for the people. Herod the Great had uh, four sons who he divided it through, and and that's who's listed here. He was a, a, a vile man as well, and so were his children that are listed here. And so politically, the place was a a mess and uh, very tumultuous. But then he talks to us about Annas and Caiaphas here as the high priest, and they're there to tell us about the spiritual darkness of the time. Annas was uh, the high priest uh, at at the time before he was deposed by the Romans. Uh, But because of the politics and, and all the things there, although he was not officially high priest, he was still acting very much as a leader of the people. Caiaphas was his son-in-law who was the official high priest. So it was all very muddy and very ugly. Annas, we know the story about Jesus casting out the, the money changers all in the temple. Uh, it was Annas who was making all the money off that. Uh, he was the one who was skimming off the top from those selling and those exchanging in there. So the corruption politically and spiritually is, is terrible. And so not only does this put us into perspective of time, but John is just giving, or Luke is just giving us a brief little glimpse here of the darkness of the time spiritually and politically. Um, a terrible place. Now, while all this is going on and while this is happening, out in the middle of nowhere, and this is what it looks like, out in the middle of, of nowhere, John the Baptist begins his ministry. He's moving in the wilderness out and around uh, Judea. And uh, your archaeologists and, and historians and all around there that, that look can tell you, and you can see even, the, the aridness of this area is uh, really very dramatic. Like, there's nothing out there. He's out there in, really in the middle of nowhere. Nevertheless, while he's out in the middle of nowhere in this vast 
arid and, and empty, desolate place uh, near the Jordan River and, and in the areas surrounding, people are flocking out from Jerusalem and all over Judah to come out to hear this man, John, who is preaching and baptizing out in the wilderness. And his message isn't what you'd expect. His message isn't what you'd expect to hear, somebody to have people flocking to him to hear and be baptized by what he has. In the midst of the turmoil of what was happening in Israel, his message is making an impact. It's speaking to something and drawing people to something out there that they desperately want and need. He's starting here the necessary tension that will rise to fever pitch when Jesus comes along. So what John starts and the the tension that's going to rise between the people and the rulers and all these things as it goes along is, is going to start there and put everything on that teetering edge for when Jesus comes along and the message that he's going to bring. Luke here gives us in our text this morning the heart of John's message. It's striking, it's confronting, and it is completely counterintuitive. It is really the opposite of anything that we would expect as people to be preaching to gain the respect of people for God or, or whatever. He is showing us here the salvation of God. And thus, as we look in verse 6, it says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is what he is proclaiming, the salvation of God. So this morning we want to see three things as we look here at the message and ministry which is bound up in these words of John the Baptist. We want to see three things. The first thing we're going to see is what the message of salvation is not. We're also going to see what the message of salvation is. And then we will come to see how to have this salvation. So those three essential things are what we're going, to, we're going to cover as we look at what John tells us about the message of salvation, what salvation is not, what salvation is, and how we can have this salvation. So I pray it will do at least two things this morning. One, that it will help us understand the gospel more fully. And secondly, that it will help us in our sharing of the gospel with those around us. So let's begin with these three thoughts. And the first thing is, when we start talking about what salvation is not and what the message of the gospel is not, we come here to understand that salvation and the message of salvation is a confronting message. It is a confronting message. Listen here, verse 7. As John begins and speaks to the people that come out to him, he says to the multitude that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, that now, if ever there was a way to win over your audience, that's it, right? They all come flocking out to hear you and, and you insult them. You brood of vipers, you wicked people. Salvation, you see, and the message of salvation is not a feel-good message. The message of salvation is not a feel-good message. It is not about self-esteem. Every, every thought of... Have you ever thought of starting your witnessing with these words or with something like this? 
You wicked, vile person. You sinner of the greatest degree. You snake. And then try and tell them about about salvation. Well, this is how John starts his message. And there's a reason he does it like this, and an important reason he does it like this, which we need to understand. The problem is, and the reason that we need to understand this so deeply and so uh, carefully, is because throughout so much of Christianity today, the gospel that is being given out is a gospel of self-esteem. A gospel that, that you can be better, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's the depth of the gospel message that we give out. The pastor of the largest church in America says this is his message, the gospel. My message is a message of hope that God is a good God and that no matter what we've done, where we've been, God has a great plan for our lives. Most people already know what they're doing wrong. And for me to get in here and just beat them down and talk down to them, I just don't think that inspires anybody to rise higher. But I want to motivate. Right? That's what's being passed off as the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's Tony Robbins' uh, motivation speech stuff. That's not the gospel. We're so afraid the gospel will offend that we've changed the gospel. We've changed what the gospel is. The message of the gospel is offensive. It is offensive. It's confronting and it's humiliating. The gospel is humiliating to who we are as people. There is no way to speak the gospel without offending. It is really impossible because that is where it must start. The gospel message itself is offensive. And yet, it is this message which he keeps preaching, which is part of what has made John so popular. He wasn't telling them what so many people already were, what they wanted to hear, or giving them more laws to follow, or six steps to godliness, which is what the leaders were doing. Do this and do that, and that'll get you pleasing with God. If you follow these rules, God will be happy. If you live this way, you'll be satisfied. He wasn't giving them any of those things that they were getting from everywhere else. And between Jesus and John, this message, while at first it would draw many, would also draw or force most away in the end. See, the gospel message isn't about feeling good about yourself. The gospel is about seeing yourself truly. That's why John starts this way. That's why John speaks this way. Now, what he says here, when he says and he calls them brood of vipers, that seems like a great put down, like he's insulting them in some way and, and uh, you know, from insulting them, then trying to, to bring them up. But that, that little statement, brood of vipers, is much more potent than just an insult. Like, it's not really an insult at all. We look at it like that and we kind of take it that way. Well, wow, he's insulting the people, but he's not. There is something much more powerful, much more potent in those few words. Because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, when Satan comes to deceive Adam and Eve as a snake, the Jews have always associated the snake with the devil. 
was part of how they thought. And we really do the same thing and have the same thing. And so you, you look at that and you listen to what John says here. You brood of vipers and think, yikes, John, you're telling them they're children of the devil. That's what he's saying. When he says you brood of vipers, he's saying you are children of the devil. The same thing Jesus would tell uh, the people and particularly the leaders in John chapter 8. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus tells them the exact same thing. We are children of the devil. Paul starts off the same way in his great uh, doctrinal treatise on what salvation is, the book of, of Romans, the letter of Romans. Before he gets to the beauty and the glory of what salvation is and what God has done for us and all the benefits and the blessings and the change in the life it does, he starts off in chapter 1 of Romans with these words. From verse 28 of chapter 1 it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. What does he say? He says, you try and find a way out, right? You try and find something in that list which does not describe you in any way, even the smallest way. He says, this is what we're like. We are the children of the devil. Now, you don't have to call people a brood of vipers. I'm not saying go out and start your witnessing saying you're a brood of vipers. But what you must do is you must tell them that they are sinners at odds with God. You must. If that is not part of what we tell people, then we have not given the gospel. We must begin with that thought. We are sinners separated from God, even at odds with God. So the first thing that the gospel is not, the message of salvation is not, is a feel-good message. The second thing is, is that it isn't about avoiding judgment. It isn't just about avoiding judgment. So the, the end of verse 7 says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now one thing that is true of all people is that we all want wrong to be judged. We all want wrong to be judged and to justice for justice to prevail. And everyone thinks that wrong should be judged, and we're not always agreed on what evil is, though. But we are all certain that if it's wrong, and that if there's wrong or there's evil, it should be judged. We're born with this innate sense of right and wrong, that there is right, and that there is wrong, and that the wrong should be punished. We get indignant at injustice, no matter who we are or where we're from. What we don't want to admit is that we are guilty ourselves and need to be judged. We'll do almost anything to make ourselves feel in the right. Almost anything. Because we don't want to be judged. 
This is one reason, what John is saying here, is one of the reasons why so many were flocking out to hear his message. It was a belief that before the Messiah came, judgment was coming. And that they needed to escape that judgment. So they were coming out to John to seek repentance. Because with the expectation that that Messiah must be near... They didn't want to fall into the judgment which would come before him. So they just wanted to make sure that they'd done whatever they could to avoid judgment. So that they could be freed and not have to fall into that chastisement. It had nothing to do with love for God or a desire for him. One of the other ways that we get the gospel wrong when we share the gospel, it's not only speaking about it in self-esteem ways, but one of the other ways we get the gospel wrong is talking about, about salvation as if it is an escape from hell. You know, hell, is, hell is really bad. You don't want to go there. So believe Jesus. I've, I've heard Christians witness by saying, believe Jesus, what have you got to lose? You know, if in the end, it's not, what if... What if what has it done wrong? You know, at least, if it is true, you'll escape the judgment. See, the message of salvation is not fire insurance. That is, it's not there to keep us from the fires of hell. That is not what salvation is about, to avoid judgment. So firstly, it's not about self-esteem. Secondly, it's not about avoiding judgment. And thirdly, the message of salvation isn't about trying to please God. The end of verse 8, John cuts them off before they can give their next argument. He interjects and he answers their next argument, an argument which they will bring up many, many times with Jesus even after. He says, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, here, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The argument essentially is we're God's chosen people. We keep the law. We have the feasts and the promises. This is the argument from religion. That if I do right, God will be pleased. And that will be enough. If I'm part of the right group, God will be satisfied. If I do the right things, if the balance sheet in the end is right, it will be fine. It is a religion. And no matter what form you want to look at it, whether it's an organized religion or whether it's your own religion of how you think, but this is the argument from religion. If I do what I think will please God, then that will be fine. Now, God does have rules. He certainly does have rules. And with those rules, he expects obedience. In fact, he doesn't just expect obedience, he expects perfect obedience. Anything less than perfect obedience is not his standard. Any failure, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly insignificant, any failure disqualifies you completely and totally from God's favor no matter how insignificant you may think that failure is. So while God does have rules, obeying those rules don't win me favor with God. Following the rules will not save you. So John says, 
Don't you think if God wanted to, he could turn these stones into his own special people? Of course he could. He could, he could do that. Paul tells, tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. That is, it's not the good things you do. It's not by following the rules of the Lord. It's not by doing good that makes you pleasing to God. Or as Paul will say in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It does not matter how religious you are, how devout you are. It doesn't matter how caring you are about others or how self-sacrificing you are in the world to, to others. It doesn't matter how well you follow God's rules. Those things will not get you to heaven. They will not bring salvation. So what we know from what John has said is these three things. The gospel isn't about finding self-satisfaction and purpose. The gospel is not about escaping judgment. And the gospel is not about doing good. So then the question comes, what is the gospel? What is the message that John is preaching as he projects us forward to what Jesus is coming to do? And that's the question the people ask. And the answer that John gives us here as we look is this. Salvation is a message of repentance. It is a message of repentance. In fact, salvation requires repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. We're talking about something entirely different. John was preaching repentance. It says in verse 3, and he went into, uh, went into all the regions around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is a concept we don't like much, repentance. That's why we don't talk about it much and why it often gets left out of the message of salvation. We express remorse. We express regret. We express sorrow, we'll endeavor to make amends for the things that we've done wrong, or at least we think we've done wrong. What we will see is repentance isn't just about saying, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is not just saying sorry. There is more to it. And this is the same message that Jesus preached. Jesus preached the same message of, of, of repentance in Mark. Mark records Jesus saying this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is essential to the gospel message. The apostles preach the same message. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance literally is a change of mind. It's what repentance literally means, a change of mind. It is essentially to agree with God about the facts. So I change my mind of my own and I agree with God about the facts of sin and salvation. It is to turn from your own ways and to turn to God. So it is an action. It requires movement on my part. That is, I need to agree with what God says is true and then have actions which follow that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, just defining really what repentance is, 
how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. You turn from what you're serving, which for most of us, although we may call them idols, is essentially self. No matter what it is we're serving, we turn from what we're serving to serve and love God. Repentance, to turn. The conviction that leads to repentance is what moves us to agree with God. What moves us to turn from our old ways to God is a work of the Holy Spirit. That is a subject which uh, requires more time than we have this morning. But Jesus told us in John chapter 16 and verse 8, and when he, that is the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But here's one of the, 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 the glorious part of this ugliness, right? That so if, if repentance is to turn from where I am to agree with God, what we also find John teaching is that when we turn, so with repentance comes forgiveness, that is that God will receive. God will receive. He is preaching not just repentance. This is not just, not just a, an idea that we need to change our mind about something, but that when we do repent, God will forgive. He will receive us to himself. This is, again, the message of John. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the apostles. It's the message of the Bible. It's the very theme of the Gospel of Luke. A theme verse, you remember, we saw, which kind of encapsulates all that Luke said in chapter 19, verse 10, says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Isaiah speaks of the same uh, idea when he prophesies earlier, and he says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Is to turn from your ways and to turn to God. He's going to forgive. He's going to... You, we, we sung the song before, a fountain filled with blood washed all my sins away. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. The gospel may not be about self-esteem, like we said, but it's not to belittle you either. It's not God beating you over the head with how awful you really are. God tells you the truth so that you can be rescued. So that you can be rescued. So salvation requires repentance, but secondly, it expresses who we really are. Verses 3 and 4 say, And he went into all the regions around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What John's job was, is John's job was to prepare the people, prepare their hearts for the ministry of Jesus. Our hearts need to be prepared, to be readied. John's job was to prepare them so that they would understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. Why Jesus was needed. And that function is still necessary. 
That function of, of preparing hearts for people to understand who Jesus is and why he came is still a very, very important part of what to be a Christian is all about and what the message of the gospel is all about. See, if we leave out John's call to repentance, we end up with the false forms of the gospel we saw earlier. So if we leave out this idea of repentance, we end up with a non-gospel, something which is very different. Through the work of God's word and his spirit, the harsh reality of our sin brings us to confront what that is and to be comforted by Jesus Christ. One of the things that comes up here is he prepares the way. The, the picture he gives here when he talks about the, the valleys being made low and the, uh, brought up and the mountains brought down and the crooked way straight was a picture of the kings as they uh, had the way prepared before them so that the journey of a king on his royal journey would be as easy as possible with as few bumps and troubles and turns and twists along the way because you know when you're the king of a great kingdom, you can't turn a corner. Right, so they would, they would do that. They would prepare the way to make it as easy as possible for the king to go on. And that's part of what he's doing here is showing us that John's job was to prepare the way, to prepare hearts for the salvation that Jesus was going to bring and what he was going to do. But it also illustrates here what the gospel message does in our hearts. As we look at the, the valleys being brought up and the, the mountains being brought down. You know, when the gospel comes in and we start to see and we start to understand the reality of who God is and what he is doing in the gospel, it lifts up the sins that are hidden in the dark valleys of our soul and exposes those to us so we see the reality of what is inside. And the gospel pushes down the pride that I hold in my heart because I see who I really am and who God is breaks down the great mountains of pride, lifts up and exposes the depth of our sin, exposes the crookedness of our ways, the deceit and the sinfulness of our lives. This salvation then results in a change of life. It results in a change of life. Verse 10 through verse 14 we see the results that John is expecting when he says about having fruits of repentance. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. See, true repentance is life-changing. It is truly life-changing. Maybe like the Jews, as you sit and you hear these things, maybe you're thinking, so what does this look like? What does repentance look like? What is it that he's asking to do? How does this come out? It is a complete change of life. It is a different direction that our life is being brought to. It results in the actions of my life being very different. And so he gives us some examples of the conversations that he has and what people has. You know, verse 11, the people come and, and, and say, what do we do? And he talks about giving tunics, about giving clothes. And that is that this results in true love for others. 
You know, Jesus would give it as the second of the great commandments, which comes second to what? Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. So it is the second of those great commandments that it results in loving others. Repentance, as we see in verse 13, as he would describe for the tax collectors, should result in a life of honesty and trustworthiness. Or to the soldiers, in verse 14, a life of kindness and contentment, not intimidation. He uses the tax collector and he uses the soldier here as an emphasis to show us what he's talking about, what he really means here. Because these two groups of people were people who, by all accounts and by all around them, their lives were characterized by sin. These were the most despised or some of the most despised people of society, the tax collectors and the soldiers. And as he uses these people, he says, look, you are a people whose lives are with these areas characterized by sin. So what does repentance look like? A life which is no longer characterized like that, but is characterized entirely differently. Something which is completely different to what you have been known for before. Characterized by godliness. In 2 Corinthians, and I'll, I'll do this quickly as we, we go through, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives us some indications of what the signs of repentance look like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, let me, let me get there. I'll read a, a few verses, but then we'll get to verse 11 there, and that's what we want to just quickly go through here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow, uh, sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces faith verse 11 for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner what diligence it produced in you what clearing of yourselves what indignation what fear what vehement desire what zeal what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. He gives a number of signs here of what shows in repentance, characteristics that come to a life of repentance. The first that he gives there in verse 11 is a diligence and earnest pursuit of righteousness. True repentance results in a life that desires righteousness, that pursues diligently righteousness. Secondly, a clearing of your reputation. That is, I was once known for this. I'm going to clear that so that I am now known for godliness. That is no longer my life. It is a pursuit to practically clear your reputation and be one for God. Thirdly, an indignation which comes because of the dishonor that sin brings on God's name. Fourthly, that there is a fear of God's judgment. Right now, that needs to be a real. We don't talk about that as believers. We think, no, God doesn't give us any fear. Right? We we need to be afraid because the judgment of God and His chastisement is never, never easy to endure. Then a longing 
for restored relationship. To be in a right relationship with God. Then a zeal for righteousness. These are the things that characterize a life and a life which has had sins atoned for. Things that characterize a life of repentance. Now lastly, let's look at the last thing here, which is how do we find this salvation? Because salvation is a message about Jesus. Salvation is a message about Jesus, and Jesus is greater than you think. John gives us these words in verse 9, says, uh, or verse 16, we'll start. Jesus, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 15 says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Jesus is not what you're expecting. There was, amongst the time, the expectation that the Messiah was coming. What they were looking for wasn't enough. Their expectation of the Messiah wasn't enough. They looked at John and they wondered, is he the Messiah? Could he be the one? Later, Jesus would come and and their expectation of the Messiah, even with Jesus, would be wrong. Because they would be looking for a political ruler. Maybe it's John because he's so different. So many people think that they know Jesus. They know what he ought to be like. What they think he is like. And when we finally see him truly, he is nothing like what we expected. He is more. He is far more than we ever thought he could be. He exceeds our expectations constantly. He is not weak, nor is he tyrannical. He is powerful, and yet he is comforting. He is harsh, and yet forgiving. He is not what we make him to be in our little minds. He is more. John will say that we're not even worthy to loose the sandals on his dirty feet because of how great he is. What makes him so great, what makes him exceed our expectations? He gives life. He gives life. says that I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Spirit and with fire. Yeah, we can give the message. John, John baptizes with water and he's, he's giving the message. That is, he is, he's preaching repentance and he's pointing people to Jesus Christ and he's proclaiming the need for repentance. He's showing the way to Jesus and to salvation. And that is all that we can do. That is all that we must do. Show the way. We must proclaim the truth of Jesus and we must proclaim the truth of the gospel. We must speak of repentance and we must speak of forgiveness because Jesus gives life and only Jesus can give life. He gives the Spirit. The Spirit who is the promise of eternal salvation. The Spirit who is the very presence of God Himself in the life of His people. 
Freedom from judgment. Freedom from wrath. You see, repentance will result in the first three things we talked about being true. That is, with repentance, we will find not self-esteem, but we will find our true identity in Christ. With repentance, we will escape judgment because we have been forgiven. And with repentance, we will know God's favor because Jesus satisfied God's wrath. Which brings us to the very last thought this morning. And that is that Jesus will judge. See, I said that Jesus is not what we expect. Most people think of Jesus and they think of Jesus as the kind, caring, loving, gentle man, which he is in many ways. But that is only part of Jesus. Jesus will judge, verse 9 says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or the end of verse 16, he says that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And what does that mean? He says in verse 17, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He is a saving God, but he is also a judge. He has the authority to judge. John reminds us about that. He is the judge of all the earth, and he will judge. Make no mistake, Jesus will judge. He will judge thoroughly, John says. He will thoroughly clean his threshing floor. That is, he's giving us the picture of the old time where they, they're, they're threshing the wheat, they get the, the, the wheat there, they throw it up in the air, the chaff gets blown away, all the, you know, the straw and the stuff that's no good to eat, so that the grain remains on the floor. He gathers up all the grain and he puts it in his barn. Only the good grain goes in his barn. Everything else that is left is burned. At the end, Jesus will gather into his house all those that are his. And everyone outside his house finds themselves in eternal fire damnation. He will judge. Those who believe are gathered to himself and those who don't are judged with eternal fire. Now, John is no prosperity gospel preacher. I think that's clear. He's not trying to make us feel good about ourselves. He's not trying to make us feel comfortable around church or around church people. John is telling us something greater, something far more significant, something far more important. John is telling us that we are dead in sin. John is telling us that we are sinners, that we are at odds with God, the very God who made us. But he is telling us if we repent, God will forgive. He will forgive. He will give us his presence both now and for all eternity. If we refuse to believe Jesus, we will never know his compassion. We will only know his wrath. Believe it, look at the last verses. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. This message, hugely important. It is the only message we have to present. It is the only thing we have to say. But just like it got John in trouble, it will get us in trouble. It will cause offense. It will cause offense. It's not an easy message to give. But it is a message that we must give. That we are, by nature, the children of the devil. But with the goodness of God, the work of God's word and his Holy Spirit and a life, repentance can be made and forgiveness can be found. Let's pray.